Our scripture reading today will be taken Deuteronomy chapter 31. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. For those of you that are visiting today or watching via live stream, we're going straight through this book of Deuteronomy, and you've come to this study, which is the 31st chapter, verses 14 to 30. You follow along as I read that portion of scripture. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Then it shall come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify before them as a witness for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent which they are developing today, before I brought them into the land which I swore. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. Then he commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I'm still alive with you today, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words to their hearing and call the heavens and the earth the witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I've commanded you and evil will befall you in latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. Man, how'd you like to be Joshua standing there listening to what these people are going to do, and you're the guy next in line to lead them? And that's exactly what's happening here. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word and the exposition of it later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thy great sovereign majesty today to praise you for the fact that you are 
the only true God worthy of our prayers, worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. And we thank you, Lord, that we learn from the scriptures you never waver. We thank you for all your attributes that describe you, for whom you reveal yourself to be. We thank you that you offer grace to those who deal honestly with their sin in your Son. We are also thankful that you get angry with those who do not deal honestly with their sin in your Son. And Lord, it's so clear from this book of Deuteronomy as we've journeyed through it that we have two choices we can make as your people. We may choose to carefully understand and obey the scriptures, in which case we'll experience your grace and blessings, or we may choose not to obey your word that will incite your anger and bring your chastisements. It's our choice after we've believed. And Lord, it would seem to be such a simple choice, and yet your people have failed time and time again and have made the wrong choice. Please forgive us for that. Please revive us. Please convict us. Please bless us. Lord, we want to just take a moment to thank you for the Supreme Court's decision that does help the process of preserving life you ordained for babies that were created in your image. We thank you for that. We're living in troubled times, and at least that was a brief shining moment of light in a very dark world that you've given us, and we as your people say thank you. We pray that you would continue to intervene in the minds of leaders, turn their minds that will make decisions that will help your people, not hurt your people. Lord, we thank you for being a God who takes a few minutes to listen to us. Who in the world are we that you should even listen to us? But we're grateful that you do, and we pray that you would just come get us soon, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. There are 193 nations in the world that have national anthems. A national anthem is a musical composition that symbolizes the history and traditions of a nation, and it supposedly promotes a national identity and national patriotism for that nation. The national anthem of the United States is the Star-Spangled Banner. The national anthem for Canada is O Canada. The national anthem for the Bahamas is March on Bahama Land. The national anthem for Egypt is my country, my country, my country. The national anthem for Israel is the hope, ha in Hebrew. The lyrics of that national anthem for Israel were written by Naphtali Hertz Ember in 1878. And the music for that national anthem was written by Samuel Cohen in 1887 to 88. And it was adopted to be Israel's national anthem back in 1948. But several thousand years before the national anthem was written, God told Moses, I want you to write one. In fact, in this portion of scripture, God tells Moses, I want you to write a national anthem for Israel, and it will turn out to be, as you will see when we go through the lyrics of it next Sunday morning, Lord willing, one of the strangest national anthems you'll ever sing, see, or study. Because basically, it's a national anthem that says, I want Israel to sing, we're a bunch of losers. In fact, if I could sum up for you what God is going to have Moses write, he wants him to write a national anthem that shows the leaders and the people the importance of knowing and obeying the written word of God. And he also wants to write this song that will emphasize for Israel the truth of her rebellion. How'd you like to have a national anthem for the United States like that? 
Oh, say will we sin by the dawn's early light. We're so proud of ourselves, and the twilight evil is gleaming. Whose broad stripes and bad scars come from our failure of losing fights. Our transgressions we watched as we were intentionally sinning. And the devil's red glare bombed our spirituality right out of the air. Gave proof through the night that all our depravity was still there. Oh, say, does that sin-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the deceived and the home of the depraved? How'd you like that for your national anthem? That's the kind of anthem that God says, I want you to write for Israel. This is what God wanted Moses to do, and this is what Moses is going to do. The actual anthem song that he writes will be the 32nd chapter that we'll look at, Lord willing, next Sunday. At least we'll start to look at it. But this sets the stage for it. It's a song that pinpoints her rebellion. It's a song that God says, I want them singing about this. I want them to singing about how they lost the relationship with me. And there are nine key observations we want to make concerning these verses. First of all, God informs Moses it's time for him to die. Verse 14, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. In verse 14, God comes to Moses, actually tells him it's time for you to die. We saw that last time. God sets the boundary limits for every human being's life. He sets the days and months we learn from Job, and you don't go beyond those boundary limits. Moses was 120 years old, and he had lived on this earth 43,000 days. He had lived on this earth 1,440 months. And yet, even though he'd lived with those incredible numbers, the time of his departure, as Paul said, was at hand. It was time for him to go, time for him to die. The second observation is God tells Moses, get Joshua and present yourself at the tent of meeting. He says there in verse 14, so... Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. Now, the tent of meeting was like a mobile portable tent. It typically was set up outside the encampment. It was a place where people would go to consult with God. It's a place where God's presence could be. It was located outside the tent. This particular tent of meeting is not the tabernacle. And the reason why God told Moses, I want you to get Joshua and bring him there, is he said, I'm going to commission him. Now Moses has already, as we saw last week, presented Joshua to the people. But now what God was going to do is visibly appear at this tent in a pillar of cloud, so the people would know, this is my man, this is my choice. In fact, later in this very text that we'll see in verse 23, God will speak directly to Joshua. Now, Joshua had been a very loyal servant of Moses for many years. We learn in Exodus 33, 11, he was committed to living near this tent. He had a high level of commitment to Moses. He had a high level of commitment to God and to sacred worship. Actually, when you go back to the spy episode where God sent the spies into the land, Caleb appears to be the stronger of the leaders, not Joshua. In fact, when they first come back, Caleb is the one who speaks up. Joshua certainly is in agreement with what he says, and later he himself will speak, but Caleb was the first. So logically, you would naturally think, well, Caleb will probably be the choice replacement for Moses. It isn't. It's Joshua. 
Joshua was God's choice, and that point is brought out right here. You know, it seems to me we're losing sight of a philosophy that says when it's time to replace a powerful man of God, we better be talking to God about this. We better be seeking God about this. You know, it seems to me what happens is a bunch of men form a concept of what they think they ought to have, and then they look at resumes. Well, this isn't going to work this way here. God says, this is my choice of a man. I want you to get Joshua taking to that tent of meeting. Now, the third observation is God speaks to Moses in verses 16 to 21. These are critical messages that God is giving to Moses. Obviously, God wants us to see them and know them because Moses writes them down. There are six messages. He said, you're going to lie down with your fathers. Message number one, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. I'm going to stop there. I want to talk about that for a minute. This, of course, is another nice way of saying you're going to die. He just said it. He's saying it again. You're going to die. It's time for you to lie down with your fathers. And when you talk about lying down with your fathers, you're talking about what's going to happen to the body because it has reference to the fact that you're going to have fellowship and you're going to have peace with your fathers. You're going to go to where they are. So this is talking about what's going to happen to the body. It was Moses himself who wrote in the book of Genesis concerning Rachel back in Genesis chapter 35 that when she was dying, her soul was leaving her body. So the image of lying down and going to sleep is an image in the Bible that is used for somebody who's going to die. Going to sleep does not mean you go into oblivion. And we know that's true in the case of Moses because 1,300 years later, after this event actually occurs, Moses shows up at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. So it's not that you're lying down and you're in oblivion, it's that your body is lying down, but you're separated from your body and you're going, in this case, to Abraham's bosom. In our case, we leave the body and we're presently with the Lord. But certainly, the principle that you want to see here is that you would lie down with your fathers is there's a reunion that takes place when you come time to leave your body. There's a reunion with previous loved ones who've gone on into eternity before us. There's that reunion that takes place, which Paul mentions too in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So Moses is told by God, it's time for you to lie down with your father. Secondly, when these people get into the promised land, they're going to be immoral and they're going to worship other gods. They're going to forsake me and my covenant. After he tells Moses, you're going to lie down, it's time for you to die, he says to him in verse 16, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they're going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Now, as I mentioned in scripture reading this morning, Joshua is obviously listening to all of this and he's probably thinking through his mind, what in the world am I getting into here? God's not giving Moses happy news here about what's going to happen when he's gone. He says, I want you to understand truth here, Moses. You've been a great leader. You've been a strong leader. You've been a godly leader. But when you leave, these people are going to go AWOL. The potential to drift away from God and his word when you lose a strong leader is very real. And God is basically telling Moses, you know, when you leave, things are going to fall apart. 
these people that you've led all these years, these people that you've shown my word to, these people that you've shown reverence me, these people are going to turn away from me, these people that saw me do so many things for them are going to start worshiping false things. My desire, as I've told them through you, is to get those people over the land and bless them. I want to bless them and shower them with my grace and blessings. But as soon as you're gone, they're going to turn away from me and they're going to experience devastating judgment. And it will come because they get over there and they start seeing these religions. These religions. They're drawn to religion more than to me. They're drawn to religion more than to my word. Listen, non-biblical religion is a main downfall of the whole world. Religion. Religion has pulled more people away from the truth of the word of God than anything else. You know, next week we'll be singing patriotic songs, and rightly so. It's the 4th of July weekend. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. And he has. God has shed his grace on this country, but this country is moving far away from God and his word, far away from what's right and decent, and God's not going to continue to bless a nation like that. If he didn't bless Israel, he's not going to bless us. And by the way, he brings out something that probably Joshua is listening to and Moses is hearing. They're going to play the harlot. That's what he brings out there in verse 16. They're going to move into immoral stuff. That literally would be the case. They'll get involved in those religions. They'll get involved in immoral stuff. And that apparently is a real threat to even the people of God. May I just admonish all of us. God does not want his people dabbling with things sexually immoral. It is probably the fastest way to anger God in our own individual lives, in the life of the church. You start dabbling with things that are immoral, and it'll cause God to get very angry. And he brings out the fact, that's what these people are going to do. These are my people, they're going to do this. Which brings us to his third message. God's anger is going to burn against them. That's what he says in verse 17, that my anger will be kindled against them in that day. I'll forsake them and hide my face from them, and they'll be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? God says, I want you to understand when my people get involved in immoral things, this is the reaction. These are the realities of the way it works in regard to me. I get angry. When I see my people pursuing that which is immoral, I get angry. And he says, this will cause six realities. Number one, I'll forsake them. You know, there's a scary statement made in the book of Judges about Samson, who was consumed by, you know, immoral kinds of things. When he actually had lost his hair, there's a scary statement that says he did not know God had departed from him. He didn't even know it. At least at that moment, he didn't know it. See, God's people can so anger God, pursuing things that they have no business pursuing, that God can forsake his people and his people don't know it. They're living life in some delusional la-la land. 
thinking God is just with us and he's going to bless us and it doesn't really matter what we think or do or believe or how we govern ourselves. And God says, I'll tell you what, you move away from my word, you move away from me and the things that are immoral and I will forsake you and whether or not you know it, that'll be reality number one. Reality number two, I'll hide my face from you. He said, I'll hide my face from Israel. I'll not shine my favor and blessings on that nation. In fact, I'll hide my face from blessing them. That's what he's saying to his own people. Thirdly, I will see to it they're consumed with many evils. I'm convinced that one of the reasons some people are dominated by things they can't get a handle on is God's judging them. I'm talking about God's people. He's just sick of them. He said, fine, I will let this evil consume you. You won't be able to shake it. It's like an addiction. You won't be able to get away from it. Fourthly, he said, I'll see to it you're consumed with many troubles. God says, you need to understand something. I can give you a peaceful, tranquil life, but I can also bring you troubles, a lot of them. I can bless my people. I can ruin my people. I can let troubles come into their world. And if you back away from me and my word and you forget about me and you start pursuing that which is corrupt and immoral, God says, I'll allow troubles to overtake you, one right after another. And fifthly, God's people will say, God doesn't even exist among us. At some point, the people will come to realize, you know, we've lost something in our relationship with God. If you sense that, that you've lost something in your relationship with God, you get to God as fast as you can. You admit the truth. Deal honestly with things and experience the mercy and forgiveness of God. It's offered. But God can get so angry that you don't even think he's with you anymore. And finally, God says, I'll hide my face from my people. I will see to it that I'm not looking upon them to favor them in any way, shape, or form. You know, people can get so caught up in sin, they just assume everything's okay with God. God says to his own people, you drift away from me. You drift away from my word. I'll not bless you. I will see to it that you have a miserable existence. And I know some of you theologians and dispensationalists, and I am a dispensationalist, and I consider myself to be a novice theologian, would say, well, this is Old Testament stuff. Old Testament stuff for Israel, and it is. It's what's happened to Israel. But the writer of Hebrews says, in the New Testament, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and in that same context, he says, the Lord will judge his people. So if you sense that God is far removed from you, get alone with God and do honest analysis of where you're at in your life in regard to the word of God. It's time for you to do that. Unfortunately for Israel, she didn't do that. Now his fourth message is, Moses, I want you, and also Joshua will be there with you, but Moses is primarily the writer. I want you to write a national anthem song for Israel. Verse 19, now therefore write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. The best leader, the greatest teacher that any of us will ever have will be one that will tell us the truth. 
even when the truth is negative news. God says to Moses, I want you to write it down. I want you to learn this song. I want you to teach this song. This song was not to be so much sung, although I do think it was in mind that you sing it, but you are to teach this. Now, the actual lyrics of it, as I mentioned, show up in chapter 32. It's the strangest national anthem song that's ever been written. It's so foreign to the way men think which shows us God's ways aren't our ways. I mean, how many hymns do you know that sing of a warning that if God's people turn away from God, they're going to anger him and he'll stop blessing them? I talk with Brian about that. He lives in that songbook. I can give him themes and he can quote hymns. I said, Brian, how many songs have you run across? Because I can't think of any. How many hymns are we singing that actually stress the fact that if as the people of God, we turn away from God and we refuse to respond to his word, he's going to tighten the screws, he's going to bring us to a chastising judgment, and he's not going to let up? How many do you know? He goes, I don't know any. I said, neither do I. And yet, when you read Colossians 3.16, we read that songs and hymns are supposed to teach. Well, we like them when they teach on the love of God. And we like them when they teach on the grace of God. And we like them when they teach on the forgiveness of God. And we sure like them when they teach on the blessings of God. Well, what about this theme? What about this theme? God wanted a song written for the purpose of showing his people, you're in rebellion. Teach them the song. Let them sing it. Let them learn the song that my angry judgment is against them. And this song isn't just to be sung. You teach it. And you say, boy, well, Jesus never taught anything like that. Really? According to John 12 and verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke will judge him at the last day. This song was to be a witness, verse 19 says, against his own people. Do you see it? You write this song, you get the people to sing it and study it. This is to be a song against my people. Can you imagine some national anthem being sung to acknowledge that God isn't shedding his grace on us? Can you imagine a national anthem song that stresses the fact God is angry with us? God isn't going to bless us. This Jewish national anthem has been missed by Israel. It's been missed by every nation in the world. They don't sing this. No nation has a theme like this for their national anthem. Here are the lyrics to the Jewish national anthem in English. As long as within our hearts the Jewish soul sings, as long as forward to the east to Zion looks the eye, our hope is not yet lost. It is 2,000 years old to be a free people in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. Nice song, isn't it? Here's the problem. They have hope in a God who's angry with them. Because they will not turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. They're not serious about a relationship with him. 
So this whole nation is living in a relationship with an angry God who's not blessing them. He should be showering them with blessings in their land. He's not doing them, and they're not singing the song that we even say he's doing it. Which brings us to his fifth message. God will bring them to the land and bless them and prosper them, and they will turn against God. That's what he says in verse 20. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they've eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. God says, I'm going to bring them into a land, and I'm going to give them blessings beyond their wildest dreams. I mean, look at what he cites there. It'll be a land flowing with milk and honey, just producing. They'll be prosperous. They'll be completely satisfied. I'm going to take them into that land. I'm going to give them my personal blessings. I'm going to bless them in every way, shape, or form. And how will they thank me? They'll worship other gods. They'll serve other gods. They won't concern themselves with me and my word and my covenant. Two things he mentions in this context pull people away from God. Worldly influence. They'll get over there in the land and see those worldly people and and what they have with their false stuff, and they'll follow them down their path. And the other thing is prosperity. They'll get in that land. They'll be so prosperous that they'll just completely forget about me. And hasn't that happened in the United States I mean, this is what has happened to Israel. If it happens to Israel, wouldn't it happen to a nation like this? How many people do you know of all the people you know that really take the word of God seriously? I'm talking about all the people in your sphere. How many do you know are really concerned about what does Genesis say from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50? I mean, how many people do you know that are that serious about wanting to understand the word of God? We're no different than Israel. The sixth message is God knows what the people will do and there will come a day when they'll remember this song. That's what he says in verse 21. It shall come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify before them as a witness. The national anthem one day for Israel is not going to be one of hope. The national anthem one day for Israel is going to be one of we need help. And it will take the tribulation. To back Israel into a corner when she will finally cry out to God as a nation and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We need help. And in verse 22, it says, So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. Their national anthem was written down by Moses. He wrote it. One day they'll be singing it. I guarantee you one day they'll be singing it. But imagine you're Moses. You've just been told by God a couple of times, you're going to die. You want to know what's happened to your leadership? You want to know what's happened to how you led these people all these years? How you've pointed them to me? How you've told them of the importance of the word of God carefully taught. Want to know how this is all going to end? They're going to move away from your teaching and move away from me fast. Then the fourth observation is God commissioned Joshua. 
In verse 23, then he commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun. There are three main episodes that occur in this 31st chapter concerning Joshua. First of all, last time we saw in verses 7 to 8, Moses sanctioned Joshua in front of all the people. And then we just saw a few minutes ago in verses 12 to 14 that God had Moses and Joshua appear at the tent of meeting and appear there. And now he specifically commissions Joshua in the chronology here of getting Joshua aside. And there are three admonitions that Moses gives to Joshua. God gives to Joshua. Number one, be strong and courageous. Apparently Joshua needed this. I mean, who wouldn't after you listen to this? I mean, you listen to God telling you exactly what these people are going to do. And then God says, now be strong and courageous, Joshua. And he keeps repeating that. To Joshua, apparently Joshua had a personality that thought, maybe he's thinking, I don't want this job. I mean, give it to somebody else. Give it to Caleb. And he goes, no, Joshua, you be strong and courageous. It'll take that kind of leadership to just keep focused, no matter what these people are doing. Secondly, you'll bring Israel to the land that I promised to Israel. That's what he says in verse 23. It'll be your job. You shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. God says, I promise to lead Israel into the promised land. You're the guy that I have selected. It's your job. This is a key moment when I'm taking this nation into land that I have promised to give them, and you have the privilege and the responsibility of taking them in there. And finally, know this, I'll be with you. God says, I want you to know, Joshua, I'll be with you every step of the way. It's true that Moses is going to be gone. He's going to die. But you can know this, as you cross over as my new chosen leader, I'll be with you. Which brings us to the fifth observation. Moses finished writing the words of the law. I want you to look at verse 24. It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete. I just don't get how these crazy scholars come up with a JPED theory that Moses didn't write the law when it specifically says there he did. That solves it for me. Moses wrote the law. God uses Moses to write the Old Testament. He wrote it down. He put it in a book. It was complete. And by the way, notice this. Don't overlook that in the verse. The word of God comes down to words. The word of God comes down to written words. Now you know what words do. They form sentences. They communicate thought by forming sentences. Those sentences form clauses. Those clauses form paragraphs. Obviously, if it's God's word, it's to be taken seriously and studied systematically. I mean, Moses wrote down these words. God really is telling his people, take it seriously, which brings us to the sixth observation. He commands the Levites to display the written word in the most sacred place of all. He says in verse 25, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant contained two stone tablets, Moses said, you take this written law, you take this written word, and I want you not to lock it up in a box where nobody can see it. What I want you to do is I want you to take this written word and you put it right there, right there beside the ark, showing how sacred this is and how serious God's people need to take this. 
and it'll be a witness against them. They're not going to say, well, we didn't have the word of God. Oh, yes, it'll be a witness against them. That's what God's written law is, by the way. God's written law is a witness against every single one of us that we're all guilty and sinful. The law of God cannot save anybody. The law of God establishes guilt for every one of us, and Paul says it'll close every mouth. If somebody dares get before the Lord and dares say, well, I kept the law, God said, all right, let's just call up the law, and let's just call up your life, and let's just see how you measured up, and we all lose. The seventh observation is Moses knew these people would become more rebellious after he died. Verse 27, for I know... Your rebellion, and this is Moses now talking, your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I'm still alive with you today, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? It's a hard thing for a leader to swallow when you've poured your life into people, but Moses knew these people. He knew what they were. They weren't going to have a spiritual revival when he was gone. It would become a free-for-all. In fact, you get a generation beyond them, and they don't even remember much about them. Everybody's doing that which is right in their own eyes. He knew what these people were going to do. They'd been doing it when he was here. He didn't find these people dedicated to understanding and applying the scriptures. He didn't see that. He knew these people would rebel and turn against God. They were rebellious right in front of him. So he knew what God was telling him was absolutely true, and he's telling that to these leaders. Which brings us to the eighth observation. He addressed the elders in verse 28. Assemble to me all the elders of the tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I've commanded you and evil will befall you in latter days and you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger and the work of your hands. I mean, I don't honestly think that most leaders have any idea how serious a responsibility they have to see to it that the people of God are carefully taught the scriptures. It's like churches have been turned into free-for-all places. And there's no more reverence for the word of God. Moses said, I'm talking to you leaders now. I'm talking to you elders, the head of your tribes. I'm confronting you. I'm confronting you with the truth. I know what you're going to do after I'm gone. You'll start acting corruptly. You'll turn away from the word of God. You'll turn away from the will of God. But I want you to understand this point. You will so anger God, you'll provoke him to anger. And he will chastise you. And then, finally, Moses speaks to all Israel there in verse 30 men, women, and children. Then Moses spoke to the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the word of this song until they were complete. The national anthem song will be presented in chapter 32. It's not going to be patriotic. It'll be pathetic. It's interesting we get to look at the national anthem on the 4th of July weekend next weekend. What that anthem will do is tell the truth about the corruption that has existed in Israel, that has brought about the judgment of God. In that national anthem song that Moses will pen for Israel, he'll talk about their perversions, he'll talk about their depravity, 
He'll talk about their idolatry. And also, they'll be singing about the fact God's going to cut them to pieces. See, it's not just fluffy stuff here. This law of God will be a testimony against every one of the people of God. Those poor Israelis who actually think that they're somehow pleasing God by their religious rituals and attempts to keep the law are missing it. They're missing it. They're missing the truth that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. They won't believe in him. So that law will be a testament that they never kept it. And that same law will be a testament that we've never kept it. If you think you can somehow have a relationship with God based on religion or works or keeping the law, you're going to lose. Because Jesus came to put an end to the law. Believe on him and you shall be saved. Let's pray. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ... Perhaps you're trusting in something else to save you other than him, yourself or your works or your goodness or your morality or your attempts to keep a few Old Testament laws. That isn't going to work because we're all sinners here. We've all fallen far short of the glory of God, and that's why Jesus Christ came into this world and died on that cross. He is the fulfillment of the law of God. He's the fulfillment of the righteousness of God. And if you will believe on him, his righteousness will be given to you. Right now, in this moment, you just admit the fact that you're a sinner. Invite Christ to be your Savior. Our Father, this is a probing passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture that is very sober, very serious. It seems to me, Lord, in many of our hymns that we sing, and rightly so, they focus on grace and goodness, and they should because of what's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's certainly true, but this theme here is getting lost that you're also a God who can get angry, very angry with your own people. I pray we wouldn't lose that concept in our own individual lives or in the life of this church. I pray that we would walk circumspectly, wise, not as fools. I pray that we would stay away from things that would anger you, especially immoral things. Keep us on a path of righteousness and truth. Keep us conforming to your word. Help us to be convicted by the Spirit of God and respond to that conviction quickly. And we'll thank you for your work in our lives. Lord, it's our desire to finish before you and have you be pleased with us, not ashamed of us. So please make that happen, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.